Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're continuing in our highlights from the book of Corinthians. And I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. So let's get down to it. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. So let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, 
but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Powerful apostolic words. The power and the glory is my title. But I don't want you to have any preconceptions about that. I'm going to fill it with the content of the revelation from this chapter. This week we have seen a new pope elected taking the name of Francis because he's wanting to show that he is humble, living a simple lifestyle, caring for the poor. And I commend that. What is interesting though is that those words are said from perhaps the biggest, greatest show of worldly power in ecclesiastical history. Based on Roman imperialism, wealth, and in history at least, backed up with military power. How different from the spirit of the gospel. And we too, Protestants, and Pentecostals need to think of power and glory not in worldly terms. And I had thought maybe I would spend a bit of time on that point, but really, I want to take this discussion into another direction. It's not that the gospel has come that we should be powerful and mighty and rich and wealthy in this world's terms. I know that God will meet your every need. I know that God is a God of abundance and he will satisfy you and take care of you. I understand all of that, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The blessings that come to us are byproducts of living for God. And I want to show you how these people I think largely through false teachers had got the wrong idea of what the Christian life was about. They had the wrong example amongst those leaders who were talking about all the richness and the fullness that was theirs. In fact, to listen to them, you think that they had died and gone to heaven because heaven or the future life in the future kingdom of God, that's when we will reign with Christ. Now, the cross and conflict, but then the perfect day. And there's a wonderful way in which our faith has arms long enough to reach out into the future and bring some of those future blessings of the kingdom now. And I understand that we are living in God's kingdom now, but the kingdom that God is bringing has not yet been fully manifested as it will be manifested when Jesus Christ returns with all the out demonstration of the power and glory of the kingdom of God that shall be. But now we have to live with the reality that we still go through much conflict and difficulty and the measure of spirituality is not the size of the bank account, but it is the humility of the cross that you carry in your hearts. And so we're going to tackle this. So really, what I'm focusing on is satisfaction and fulfillment. 
Because in the same way that these people were saying that unless you were living the life of rich, richness and wealth and luxury, unless you could demonstrate the kingdom through all of these outward signs of wealth and power and influence, then you were not men and women of faith. And alongside that was unless you are living the good life, the satisfied life, that kind of life that would make the men and women of this world with their worldly ideas jealous, green with envy. I'll become a Christian too. Then I can be happy like you. There is an element at which this is absolutely true. But there's also an element of this which is absolutely false. Because Jesus did not come that we might live the satisfied life, the full life, the good life. Jesus came that we might receive his power to be and live to his glory, not our glory. That's what this is about. So the Apostle Paul is tackling the issues which are there in the Corinthian church. And if you've been following this series, as I've gone back and listened again to the message or check my notes, the consistent theme has been stop thinking like the world. Becoming a Christian is not about just taking all the basic ideas of the world, bringing them and putting Christ on top of them. So Christ now is the one who's going to fulfill me. Christ now is the one who's going to give me the good life. Jesus exists to satisfy my needs and to give me the good life so that I live in comfort and luxury because he went to the cross. That is not the deal. We were singing at a moment ago, laying hold of your truth, I surrender to you. Holding on to the truth, we surrender to Christ. He does not surrender to you. Amen. He is not the genie that comes out of the lamp, the religious lamp, that is able to rub it a bit, and out comes the genie, the Holy Spirit, and he says, oh, yea, my master, your wish is my command. What can I do for you today? That is paganism that is worldly philosophy, that is not the teaching of the gospel of the Christ who came and lived and died for the glory of God. Amen and amen. No, no, no. Every day we bow before Almighty God in the name of Jesus and say, Lord, Savior and Master, my life is so filled with love and joy for you today. What can I do for you? How can I serve you today? And so one of the things that happens is that many people are not thoroughly converted deep down in their fundamental beliefs. They still are looking for what the world looks for. And when you say, Jesus is the truth, they say, amen. Now, if you were to ask them, what do you think truth is? They would say, don't do philosophy with me. But if you, if you dug down and you find out what they would say, many of the women, men and women of the world will say this, truth is what makes life work for me. And so, when they hear Jesus, they say, okay, we'll receive Jesus because I've tried everything else and it doesn't work. Now maybe Jesus will work for me. And that's the opposite of the gospel. Surrendering to Christ is you begin to work for him. Amen and amen. Hello, I'm back. Amen. And so then what happens is that 
when it starts to stop working and we start to feel, well, you know, do you know what? There's quite a few things that I would like that Jesus doesn't seem to be giving to me. And here's a, a true story. I was lecturing in a Bible college in a certain part of the world, and one of our own colleges, and a, and a woman stopped me. She said, you know what? What you're saying is all very well, but I'll tell you something. If Jesus doesn't give me a Christian husband by the time I've graduated, I'll go out and find my own. And she did. And now she is nowhere with God. What did she say? Well, Jesus is there to get me a husband. That's why I signed up. And in other words, and we, we need to give attention to the issue of the number of women in the church by comparison to the number of men. And you don't have to do a lot of mathematics. We don't believe in polygamy. So we have got to do something about that. So men, get out there and multiply yourselves. <laughs> I mean, you know, reproduce yourself through Christ and the gospel. Go on, men, win some men. Go from here today and come back next week with three men each that you've won to Christ. Then some of the women in this church, the most beautiful women in the world, will stand a chance to find a godly man. Okay, so ladies, I said that for you. I'm on your side. I'm on your side. But I'll tell you what, I'm on God's side when it comes to this. It's not just about finding a husband or finding a wife. It's finding success for finding a business. Let me talk to some of you men. Yeah, you know what? I will tithe because when I tithe, God promises to multiply and my business will be successful. And somebody comes and says, ever since I've started tithing, I've been, had the most terrible time in business. So uh, maybe I start tithing to Buddha or something to see what, see what happens. So when it's all about us, we miss it. The gospel is all about Christ. It's all about God's glory and all about God's kingdom. So it seems to me the apostle Paul begins by saying, get it right. We are servants, not rulers. That's the first thing it seems to me he says. If we have a look here. In, in the first verses, verses 1 to 8, the first verse actually says, So let a man consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You think that you are ruling. You think that you are reigning. You're not servants. You, are, you think that you are kings. And he says, I'll tell you the, the truth of the gospel. We are not kings in the kingdom. There is only one king. We are servants of the king. Now I know that God promises that we shall rule and reign with Christ. Amen? Yes, he does. But every verse in the New Testament that speaks of our kingship ruling with Christ is in the future tense. Only once does it say that we reign now. That's in Romans chapter 5, where it talks about reigning in life. And when you see the context, it's talking about exercising our authority in Christ over sin so that we can rule and master sin in our lives, rule over sin and master it, and live a life of righteousness. And God has given us amazing authority over sin, over Satan and all his works. But it is a spiritual authority. It is not about ruling in God's kingdom that has not come in its final and outward form that it will come. So we are going to reign with Christ. But that 
kingdom has not yet been revealed as it will be revealed one day. So now we live by faith and not by sight. Now we are servants of Christ and indeed of one another. And this is the very opposite of worldly understanding of power and glory. If you go back to Mark's gospel chapter 10, turn to it. Mark's gospel chapter 10 verse 42. Remember, James and John were pushing for some promotion. They got Jesus on one side, say, in the kingdom, I want to be on your right, I want to be on your left, I want to be the prime minister, I want to be the chancellor of the exchequer in your kingdom. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. But really, what was at at the root of that request was this worldly thinking of seeking to measure the power of the gospel in worldly terms of position, of success, of wealth, and of personal satisfaction. Verse 42, Jesus corrects it. And he says, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, it's very clear that Jesus says we are to to be servants. Now, when he says, not even the Son of Man came to be served, you need to know he was speaking to Jews who knew their Bible. In Daniel, the book of Daniel, it speaks, Daniel chapter 7, it speaks of this Son of Man who is given the kingdom, given great authority and power. And they didn't understand when Jesus said the Son of Man must be betrayed and crucified, but he will rise on the third day. They said, who is this Son of Man? They were still looking for the outward show of the kingdom that in the first instance would cause the yoke of Rome to be broken and that would be an established political kingdom. And Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not of this world, else my servants would fight. So Jesus was saying, you gotta get this. You gotta understand the way to the crown is the cross. The way to glory is humility. You, by making yourself low, you will be lifted up. And so the the, the principle that governs our lives from now and forever, and and, and especially uh, up before the kingdom comes in its manifest form, is servanthood. But the truth is, as I was stumbling over my words a bit there, the truth is we shall never stop serving Jesus. It's just that we will be given more responsibility in the future kingdom to have significant positions of of, uh, serving Christ in his kingdom. But right now, we are not to live as if we were ruling and reigning and throwing our weight around and living for ourselves and and certainly not judging our, our success 
in worldly terms or judging our lives in terms of personal fulfillment, but how much of Christ's will is being manifested in us and through us? How are we serving Jesus? What are we doing to serve him and to work for him? He is not your slave. We are his servants. That's why Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Well, the word servant is clear. It means you have no rights. A servant is serving others, not ruling over them, but serving them. And a steward, what is a steward? A steward is somebody who is looking after the goods and interests and concerns of somebody else. They don't own a thing or belongs to somebody else. I don't know if you've been to the bank recently. Um, you can do it online and telephone and all the rest of it, but just for old time's sake, go into a, a bank, if you can find one, and, and just watch those people. You might want to cash a check, and they, they take out and they open the drawer, and the money just falls out of there. And they take the money, and they count. They must handle thousands of pounds every day, and not one penny is theirs. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine how frustrating that is. That's a steward. So to be a servant is the opposite of self-assertion, and to be a steward is the opposite of personal possession or personal fulfillment. And yet, these Corinthian believers, some amongst them, and we shall see later on if we choose to continue into 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that the Apostle Paul is already beginning to build up a defense against an attack on his ministry. For the people who were teaching this way were people who despised Paul. Say, Paul, you're writing from prison. Where's your faith? Paul, you say you're hungry. What's the matter with you? And they were actually criticizing him and saying that he, was, he wasn't really a true apostle. And, and yet these super apostles were the false apostles. And they were going beyond what is written. And that's what it says in verse 6. To, not to think beyond what is written. In other words, they were going beyond the Bible and making up their own gospel, making up their own message. And their message was basically a worldly message, and that's why it was very attractive and very popular. Uh, and some of that today is found like this when people preach, God is going to give you a mighty victory in your life. You will have no more sickness. You will have no more suffering, no more sorrow. There will be instant provision for every area of your life. You will have no tests and no trials. And you will be healthy and wealthy and wise in the eyes of this world. And that is the promise of the gospel. It is not the promise of the gospel. Every tear will be wiped from your eyes. There will be no more suffering or pain or temptation or anything in the future life. But here and now, it is the cross and conflict rejecting the flesh, and that sometimes is painful, and it doesn't always 
feel good. But we're not here to feel good. We are here to serve God. Amen and amen. So these had changed the gospel into a message of worldly success, worldly prosperity, worldly power, and worldly satisfaction. But the real message of the gospel, which is the message of the cross, teaches us to be humble, not arrogant, and to serve others, even to the point of choosing to suffer hardship and loss for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. Did you notice that in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8 when he kind of in a very sort of almost sarcastic way describes their teaching. So he said, oh, let's hear, what are you saying? Oh, I know. You are already full. You are already rich. That is not the moment to say amen. You have reigned as kings. Don't say amen. Oh, and you've done all this without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. So he's actually dealing with something that's very relevant. Now, in a moment, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to read, he describes something that no self-respecting faith preacher that I've ever heard would ever say. I mean, you talk about negative confession. You talk about having to own up to stuff in your life, which seems to be the very opposite of the so-called victorious Christian life that we are all told we should be living. It's amazing how the Apostle Paul, who was used of God as uh, the means of bringing two-thirds of the New Testament to us today, that this man, who was one of the most powerful apostles of his generation, the great apostle to the Gentiles, look how this man describes power and glory. I mean, it's astonishing. So here's the second question he throws out. Are you living for personal fulfillment or the glory of God? That's what he's saying here. Are you living for personal fulfillment or the glory of God? And look how he describes himself. Let's go through it. Here we have verse 9. He said, I wish you were reigning, then we could have a bit of the good life as well. But how are we actually living? We apostles, we have been prepared to set aside the comforts, even home comforts, that we might bring the gospel to people who need Christ. And verse 9, he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. Excuse me, Paul. I'm sorry, but you don't know your Bible. The Bible says, we shall be the head and not the tail. So he said, I know what you're saying, but I'll tell you where I am. I am at the end of the queue. I am last. That's not a good confession of faith, is it? As men condemned to death. That's what he's talking about. He is using the picture of, of defeat and glorying in it. Ah, You see, you haven't heard a sermon like this from a faith preacher, have you? What is this picture? The picture of an army that has conquered. And this is the victory parade. And at the front of the victory parade is the general of the army with all his armor. He's returned victorious and you go down in ranks under him until, last of all, you have the captives from the war 
who are going to be sold as slaves. And Paul says, hello, that's where I am. What's he talking about? Is he denying the victory of Christ? No. Is he denying the future life? No. He is saying that the way that I live is more like the people at the back than the people at the front. Amazing. We've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise in Christ. They were twisting worldly wisdom and giving it a Christian format. Nobody wants to be last. Nobody wants to be looked at as a fool. But that's exactly how this world looks at us when we're living for Christ. We make decisions which are not based on worldly thinking. We make decisions based on who we are in Christ and out of obedience to Him. We hold to His truth and surrender to it. Surrender to Him. And the people say, you're foolish. Why do you live like that? Come on, lighten up. Enjoy yourself. And we say, no. You may think we're foolish. Actually, the day will come when you will see how foolish you have been because all of this world is passing away and everything with it. But we are investing in the kingdom of God. Amen and amen. We are weak, but you are strong. That's not, that's not a good image for a leader to stand up and say, oh, I'm so weak. But you know, I'll tell you what Paul also knew. When I'm weak, then I'm strong because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. He understood true power. He understood this stuff. We are weak, you are strong. We, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. If you're looking for worldly honor, then you're in the wrong business. Amen? If you're, if you're looking for worldly praise and worldly approval, then you cannot live a consistent Christian life. You need to be prepared to lose all of that, to lose your job, to lose your reputation, to lose everything by which other people would judge your life to be a success, and they think you're crazy, but I'll tell you something, when you are walking that way, not only is the cross of Jesus Christ effective in your life, but also his resurrection power is released. Look at verse 11. I haven't finished and I've got, to, I've got to labor this point because Paul does. He says, to the present hour, right now, right now, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. Here, the apostle Paul says, right now, our experience is more like the hobo than the king in the palace. Would you embrace that? If God so willed it, and we need more people who are willing to do that. Some of us won't even cross the street to witness to Christ. Some of us, if, it doesn't, if it's not convenient, we won't do it. But I tell you what, the gospel is not a gospel of convenience. It's a gospel of the cross that cuts into that flesh. Cuts till it hurts. 
We lay aside everything that we used to think that would make us happy. And we know happiness is, is not in the events and circumstances of life. We don't put our trust in worldly wealth. We don't put our trust in anything that this world has to offer. It is all refuse. It's all trash. There was this haulage company that put up a sign uh, to advertise their services and make a promise, but they made a mistake. They spelt one word wrong. So here's the haulage company, and this is their big slogan, satisfaction guaranteed or double your trash back. Well, they meant to say double your cash back. Satisfaction guaranteed or double your trash back. Is that how you approach the gospel as this haulage company? Satisfaction guaranteed or you can get your tithes reimbursed. Is that what this is about? At the end of the day, Jesus came to take our trash and there's no trash back. Only goodness and joy and blessing and purity and provision. Amen? Of course. But we're not living for what we can get out of him. We're living for what we can give to him. That's the gospel of the cross. Amen and amen. And in all of this, verses 12 and 13 show the real Christ-like attitudes that Paul and his fellow companions had as they served God. Doesn't this sound like Jesus? Verse 12, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Even though we have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. Amen. Wonderful. So first of all, he says, are you looking upon yourself as servants or kings? Now he's saying, asking, are you looking for personal fulfillment or really the glory of God? And then he comes to the final, final question here. He's saying, are you, are you really surrendering to human ideas or the power of God? That's what he's asking now in these last verses. And it all depends on whether you're willing or not to take God's ideas, the ideas which are revealed and demonstrated in Christ, and allow those ideas to dictate how you think, to shape your life, how you live, because only in this is the true power and the true glory of God revealed. Let's have a look at these things. Paul says, first of all, that he was and is a father to the believers. A father to the believers. Verses 14 to 15. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors or guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So here is the mark of authenticity that Paul had in his character. And it begins with his relationship to the believers. 
He was not their Lord, their guardian. He didn't dominate, dominate, manipulate. He didn't go about naming and shaming and blaming. He didn't go about manipulating them around his needs. He was their father. And apostolic ministry begins with this concept of fatherhood. There were women apostles, but this male image still applies to the ministry, whether it's male or female. You see, today, apostleship is very often seen as a kind of limpet ministry, limpet ministry, kind of sucking on and attaching to something that exists already, but not in those days. You had no right to apostle anything that you had not produced yourself. I have begotten you by the gospel. We're in a relationship by which I have added to you. A lot of apostles want to, want to lead churches they've never planted, and those churches, they suck them dry of finances and start dominating from afar and today with YouTube, Facebook, and uh, all other kinds of things. They can dominate from a distance. And Paul says, no. I'm your father, and because I'm your father, I'm not saying this to shame you. And you can get a lot of people to do what you want them to do if you're prepared to use shame. Paul says, no, I'm not gonna manipulate you, but I am going to warn you. This idea that spiritual authority and fatherhood is all lovey-dovey, cuddly, you know, weak kind of relational stuff is wrong. We've got to get to grips and understand what spiritual authority is. You know, over the years, I have been a spiritual father personally and particularly to a, a large number of people over the years. They are always men. I do not enter into personal mentoring relationships with the women. That's my wife's job. She does that. And it's amazing how many young men over the years of saying, oh, I want you to be my spiritual father. Father me. I want you to father me. And they love it. They love it until you start correcting them. And then suddenly it's, I don't, you know, I don't want you to be my father anymore. <laughs> and I, I want to say this. Men, listen to me, men. This is a word for you. It's time that you really understood your responsibility as father and husband and leader in your house. You are there to warn them. Now, this word warn is poorly translated in the New Testament English, in the English, because it, it's a very rich word. It means there's something wrong that I am going to correct. That's what it means. Secondly, it means there's something wrong with the way you think. I'm not just going to challenge what you do, but I'm going to help you change what you think so that you can continue to follow Christ as a result of this fatherly, apostolic type intervention. And we need that. We need that. I would love every Sunday to serve ice cream. I would, I'm not just talking about up and down the aisles, I'm talking about spiritual ice cream. And there is a time for a dessert message. What's your favorite dessert? I'll give it to you one day from this pulpit. But as well as that, you need the liver, the onions, the stuff that is going to give you the right nutrition. And that's why I take my responsibility to warn you Sunday by Sunday. 
I'm not threatening, but I am warning in this sense that I am putting into your mind something that you need to deal with, that you need to change in your thinking so that you can be fruitful and blessed in your Christian living. That is what spiritual fatherhood and spiritual authority is all about. Amen and amen. A spiritual father is one who is prepared even to be unpopular while he holds you to a higher standard. Amen and amen. Praise God. So he is a father to the believers. He's also an example to the believers. Verses 16 to 17 says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Cell leaders, this is your responsibility also, to warn and encourage, not just to let your cell members live as they please, but to be there in compassion and help them and also to speak more loudly by your actions than you do by your words. The Apostle Paul was very clear. He says to them, listen, my teaching and my life are indistinguishable. If you want to know what I teach, watch what I do. If you want to know what I do, listen to what I teach, because it's the same thing. And being an example gives you at least some moral authority to receive spiritual authority and to speak into people's lives. We have no right to speak into people's lives with words only. We are to learn how to exercise true spiritual power and authority that can only operate by being an example. Amen. That's medicine to the church of Jesus Christ. But he is one who exercises spiritual authority. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 to 20. 19 to 20 rather. He says, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know. Not the word of those who are puffed up. But the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word. But in power. So he says the final proof of the pudding is in the eating because you cannot build a fleshly, worldly gospel and think that you can at the same time exercise the genuine spiritual authority that God gives you as a believer or as a leader. Can't do it. And these people, they were strong in word. They were probably better preachers than Paul. They probably had a more popular message than Paul. They would look to see how, what is it we can give the most popular message that we can give today so that we can actually keep these people happy and to keep them part of this church. We'll enter into a covenant with them. We'll make, be nice to you, make you feel good, but you double your tithes and we'll make you doubly feel good. Isn't that, isn't that what it's like sometimes? And some of the ministries, and I'm not criticizing any individual ministry, I'm just putting out the spiritual principles there. 
You need to know and ask yourself, how many of those people that some of you are following, even on Christian television, what do they believe about God? What do they believe about the Trinity? What do they believe about the cross? What do they believe about false promises of prosperity? What do they believe about that? And you just say, how many of these people are really saying, listen, there's only one way, and that is to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. And there's only one vision to pursue, and that is to be a disciple maker and a disciple multiplier, which means you must first be a disciple. And not just that, but give you the very means and the structure in your church by which you can do it. The cell vision and model is not the only way of doing it, but it's the way God has given us, and we give it to you that you might be fruitful and prosper and have fruit that remains where it really matters, not so much in your bank account, but in the spiritual bank account of souls for which Jesus died. And that's many, many times you think, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up to be 60 this year, and I've been in Christ since I was 18 years of age. And I tell you, the battle against the flesh, now 59 years old, is stronger than it ever was. You never, ever have peace from that battle every single day. You must say, this day, I decide to go Christ's way. This way, it's not about having my needs met in a personal sense. I am satisfied in Jesus, whatever happens to me today. But this day is going to be a day of serving the living God. I ask you, people of God, is there anything else? Amen. Now, you know, because I gave you some hint towards it, that when you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you as well. There is no doubt that our God is a mighty Savior. He is a great healer. He is Jehovah Jireh, your provider. He is the God of abundance. He is the God of blessing. He is the God who will answer your prayers. Amen and amen. But he is also the God who says, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's a matter of balance. And the point is, is that if we try to live the Christian life as if it was like an ordinary life and a worldly life, we are going to be in big problems and we'll never ever move into the power of God. What is the power of God there? For. The power of God is that you may glorify Christ. What is the power of God therefore? That he may enable you to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, the one who says no to sin, no to the flesh, and no to the devil, and says yes to Christ, and yes the Holy Spirit, and yes the kingdom of God. Whatever it costs you, it is worth it. That's what the power of God is there for. Today, there is a, a whole industry around the psychology of happiness. I don't know if you've noticed it. In other words, they're saying, well, how do we measure happiness? And so here is a psychological test. Are you ready to be psychologically tested? But we won't do the full test because, you know, you've got to spend time on it. But here's the, here's the questions. There's five questions they ask you. And you have to say, I agree with this statement totally, completely. I agree with it mostly. I agree with it a little bit. I disagree with it a bit. I hate it. I totally disagree with it. And, and so on. You're all the things. So it's highly complex, and I'm sure it's very scientific, but it's all based on humanism, not on Christ. Here's one question, and you might have to say, yeah, I agree with them. In most ways, my life is close to my ideal. Second question. The conditions of my life are excellent. Third question. I am satisfied 
with life. Fourth question, so far I have gotten the important things I want in life. Fifth, if I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. That's how satisfied you are with life. Now there's some searching questions that we should ask, could ask ourselves, particularly if we're related to Christ, amen? But from a humanistic point of view, can you see it's all about I, I. You know, I can answer a lot of those questions in the infirmative if I'm thinking about what Jesus has done for me. And I don't know how many of those I could answer if I'm talking about what I have done for me or what I want. See, satisfaction is not about what this world gives you in any way, shape, or form. Satisfaction is what Jesus gives you, and it is not fully experienced in this life. We will die, every single one of us, with some frustrations. We have not seen a promise of healing fulfilled that we believe God for, maybe. Maybe we didn't get into the position in this world that we were looking for, but at the end of the day, when we say, Jesus, do you know what? I am satisfied because I have done my best to serve you. And serving you has not been either in my own strength. In fact, I have achieved far more than I ever thought I could possibly do because you have been with me. And for this, I am satisfied. So God is looking for a people who will truly believe the gospel and truly live the gospel. It means coming to Christ and allowing him to alter what you truly believe is reality. To be converted from an old belief system that is all about emotional, material, personal satisfaction and to live the real values of the kingdom of God. For that's where God's power and God's glory will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, help us as we allow your spirit to search deep into our hearts concerning the things that we most truly believe. Forgive us that we so easily ask you to bless our activities and our goals and our our ambitions. We realize, Lord, that it's so far from what the kingdom of God is, and we just say to you today, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. Lord, you, you, are the Lord, we are the servants. And we know that that whatever frustrations we may have to live with, that we'll be living in those frustrations with increasing sense of satisfaction in you and increasing hope and anticipation concerning the future when every tear will be wiped away. No more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more conflict, no more sickness, no more misunderstanding, no more rejection. But in the fullness of the kingdom, we will live with you and rule with you and reign with you and enjoy you forever. Amen and amen. Give Jesus a big praise. God bless you.